1: Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while you're hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. It is officially September. Folks are chasing whitetails all around the country, North Dakota, Tennessee, Florida, Uh, Lots of other states are going to be opening up here in the next couple of weeks, so it is time to talk early season whitetails. Now, conventional whitetail wisdom espouses a few basic tenets for early season hunting. Find where the deer bed, find where they eat, and don't hunt in the morning. Now, last week we talked with Josh Honeycutt and talked about some of the situations that might make hunting mornings really good in the early season, and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that this week. While hunting mornings in the early season is very different than, say, on November 5th, early season morning hunts can still be super productive. In this episode, I'm talking with Mark Haslam, and he's going to share the strategies that he's used to kill mature bucks in the morning during the early season four years running, including his most recent South Carolina Velvet Brute. Mark is a deer hunter and land manager from Georgia who spends most of his hunting time in South Carolina. Mark runs southeastwhitetail.com, he hosts the Southeast Whitetail podcast, and he writes for Wired to Hunt on Meat Eater. He was also named the 2020 National Deer Association Deer Manager of the Year. Mark really knows his stuff, and his tactics for hunting early season bucks in the morning can be effective no matter where you hunt. Before we jump into this episode, though, I do want to say thanks to our partners. First of all, Deer Lab. Deer Lab is the number one trail camera app for land managers and Hunters, it works with your pictures from any camera with an SD card. It's packed with features, including the ability to filter your photos, which really comes in handy. And it gives you one place to store all of your photos without cluttering up your computer. You can get a free trial of Deer Lab for thirty days. There's no credit card required. Just head over to their website, DeerLab.com, to sign up. Then, if you decide to pull the trigger, you can use the code HUNT DEER, all caps, to get twenty percent off of any plan. Next up, Huntworth. I've bragged on their lightweight warm weather gear all summer. It's going to be huge for me heading into these early season hunts. And uh, they just launched some new cold weather gear with heat boost technology. It's got graphene infused fabric. They've reduced the bulk while at the same time making a warmer garment. So as you're making your plans for October into November and even the late season, go give this a look. You can find this heat boost line and all of their other gear at huntworthgear.com. Then finally, Tacticam, our title sponsor. Tacticam makes the absolute best point-of-view camera for hunters and fishermen and uh, outdoorsmen in general. Their new 6.0 camera is, in my mind, a huge step forward. It's got everything that I love from their 5.0 cameras. One-touch operation, optional remote control, weatherproof. It's light. It's durable. gives you 4K footage, up to 8X zoom. But now they've added a screen, which in my mind was the only downside, if you want to call it that, to the 5.0 previous models. With that, you can go rewatch the shot immediately. You can use the screen to control the settings on the camera. And uh, with it, they really took their their value of being user-friendly up a whole other notch. I can't wait to use one this fall. They also just launched a new Solo Extreme camera. It's a little more of a budget-friendly option, but still gives you HD video, one-touch operation, all the other things you know and love from your Tacticam cameras. So go check them out at Tacticam.com or you can grab one of their wildly popular Reveal X Pro cameras at RevealCellCam.com. Now, with all that stuff out of the way, let's jump right into the conversation with Mark Haslam. Joining me today for the How to Hunt Deer podcast is Mark Haslam. Mark, what's going on, man?
0: Hey, Josh. Um, doing well. Just kept coming off a long holiday weekend. Hope you're doing well, and I appreciate you having me on today.
1: Yeah, man, absolutely. Yes, uh, it's that. It's the Tuesday after Labor Day. As we're recording this and, uh, man, I don't know about you, but I'm struggling today. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) I know what you mean.
1: Having a hard time getting my mind back in it. we, we went out of town and and did some traveling, got back in kind of late last night, had a lot of podcast work to catch up on and then getting the kids up for school this morning. Man, I'm just, it's been, it's been slow going, but, but I, I think we can make it through a podcast episode. You think, you think we can make it?
0: I think so. I, I have completely disconnected from my office right now, so I'm ready to go. I, I went in early, just to get some work, and now I'm ready to. I think I've done enough work for the morning, and now I'm ready to talk about deer.
1: There you go. Good deal. Good deal. Well, yeah, man. On that deer topic, Mark, you've got your hands in a lot of different things. So you uh, you do some writing for the Meat Eater. You do a pod. You have a podcast, Southeast Whitetail. Uh, you were also the 2020 uh, Deer National Deer Association, uh, manager of the year. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And you're also in real estate. So man, you've got your hands sort of all over the place. Why don't you give us a brief kind of rundown of who you are, what you do, where you hunt and all that good stuff. Sure.
0: I'd I'd be happy to, Josh. I, um, like I said earlier, my name is Mark Haslam and, um, um, we have a family farm in South Carolina, kind of a lower Western, uh, South Carolina. Uh, we've had that since 2006. And before that, we went a hunting club that I keep going back to, I was in kindergarten. So we I've pretty much hunt, i hunted most of my life in South Carolina as opposed to Georgia, which is where I live. Um, and, uh, I am in real estate. That's my career. That's how i you know, put food on the table, and um I started southeastwhitetail.com um uh, approaching two years ago, and really what that was was my Instagram became my outlet to showcase what we're doing at the farm, uh that the habitat work, the conservation side, everything we're doing and I, And I just wanted to expand on what we're doing, um especially in the South. Where we are in the southeast, because I I don't, you know, I think a lot of hunting content, hunting media in the the outdoor spaces, when people, when you look at big buck country and growing big giant whitetails, it's usually not the south. That's not what gets showcased. But we have a large a very tremendous uh, contingent of hunters, you know, in the east coast, uh, in the southeast. And we have long hunting seasons and we have high deer densities and there's there's a lot of challenges that go into it. So start at southeastwhitetail.com. It's primarily original articles I've written. I started the podcast that I I never thought I wanted to do, but I I did one, enjoyed it. And, uh, I've been doing that since February of this year. And uh, I was asked to do some writing for why to hunt meat meat eater, like you said. And, um, and that's, and that's, Primarily what I do is if I have any kind of free time, I'm at the farm, you know, year-round doing something, hunting or doing some, some, some type of habitat work. We also do a good bit with um, um, hunts at our place, um, uh, disability-type hunts and taking first-time hunters, uh, whether they are young, 10, 11 years old, or they're adult-onset adult hunters and they're 50, 60 years old. So we have done a lot of that as far as introducing new hunters.
1: Man, that's awesome. So you, you mentioned you have long hunting seasons. We generally do in the southeast. South Carolina, though, is kind of kind of special. So when does South Carolina season come in?
0: So there's four game zones um, in South Carolina, and two of them, the lower half essentially of uh, the state opens up August 15th. Um, and the southern game zone, Uh, August 15th, you can use archery or rifle. And the other game zone, it's um, archery only until, I think, September 15th. So we can start shooting does September 15th, and that's just to give the fawns more time with the mother does, weaning off the milk, and usually right about now or mid-September, the fawns have lost their spots. They are healthy. I mean, I saw fawns two weeks ago when I was hunting, in the feed plots and ax fields just eating away. I mean, they are very much, uh, independent at this point. And we have these long hunting seasons and liberal, you know, season limits because we have, we have such a high deer density and it's been this way as long as I can remember, even as a kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast know I grew up hunting in, in the deep South of Alabama and, I remember when I was a kid, the bag limit was, you know, season came in October 15th, ran through January 31st. So not as early as South Carolina. Um, but the bag limit was two deer a day, one of which could be an antlered buck. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because the deer density is down here. And it just, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely insane. But man, an August 15th opener, the heat has got to be killer. I mean, a lot of folks think Kentucky on September 1st is hot. I can't imagine South Carolina close to the coast on August 15th.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's not exactly a good cold front the first week in November, but you know, I love it for a couple of reasons. One is because it's the challenge of it. And I know some people might think that summer deer, you know, they're on that summer schedule and it's like shooting fish in a barrel and then, you know, exactly where they're going to be. But you know, we, we're not shooting does yet. We can't shoot them until September 15th. So you're shooting, you know, you're you're hunting mature bucks, and they're going to do what they're going to do every day, but you don't know what time. And and, and mature bucks do not; they don't all just show up, you know, an hour before dark in a big field every single night. We have a lot of deer, and you can educate these deer very quickly. So as soon as you start hunting, as soon as they start seeing and smelling you. Around, you know, uh, dawn and dusk, they change their tune. It's a, it's a challenge. And then also, you know, like like I mentioned before, I'm at our farm as much as I can year-round. I mean, I busted uh, from the time we plant food plots in the spring all through the summer. So, I mean, I'm out there in the heat of the summer. So, it, you know, and also live down here. So it's not like I'm traveling somewhere new to the heat. I mean, I'm living, breathing it. So it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a steamer right now, uh, in Savannah right now. So it's, you know, it's just the nature of it.
1: Yep. Yep. Man, I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about the farm, uh, where you hunt, kind of how that developed. And then I'm really curious about that piece of, you know, letting the deer know that you're on them this early in the season. I mean, one, it's hot. You got a lot of swirling winds, um, you're obviously smelling very different than you might in in November and really high deer density. So I imagine it's it's just nearly impossible to get in and out of the woods undetected. So tell me about the farm and some of the things you guys are doing to make sure that you're not overpressuring the deer, you know, those first couple of weeks of August.
0: Um our farm is it's it's your quintessential pine farm in the southeast. Um, the, the majority of the land is loblolly pine trees that's grown as a crop for, you know, for sale. You know, when you thin early on, there's going to be pulpwood, uh, you know, toilet paper, plywood, paper towels, all that kind of stuff, printing paper. And then as you thin the second time, you get a little bit more, you know, lumber out of it. And then the ultimate goal is maybe about 30 years or so. And they might be, you know, telephone poles. Um, that's kind of goal. And then you just start over. Um, so that's primarily what it is, but we do have a lot of ag fields that we lease to a farmer and he rotates, you know, crops this year's cotton and peanuts. And that helps us out, uh, as far as, you know, food, food and nutrition for the deer. And I know people might have a stigma about cotton or thinking, you know, cotton, the deer don't eat cotton, but I, I've got plenty of photos on my phone of current deer browse on cotton plants. They will eat anything and everything, and they do, even if they have better options very close by because they're just great. I mean, they're just grazers. Um, But with a farm, just a long story, very, very short, is that we took our time with it, bought it in in 2006, and we took our time at the very beginning because we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we were in a a hunting club. I say we didn't know what we were doing as far as land stewards. We, We didn't. We were in a hunting club for a couple decades, practicing QDM quality deer management and everything that QDMA now NDA uh, practices and what they preach. So we had that general basis, that general foundation, uh, but then it was just a long process of just taking our time, learning from mistakes, and that learning curve of working the habitat to, to, to basically blend forestry practices to maximize our income from growing trees but then also for wildlife benefit. So it's not all about growing trees. There's that happy blending of growing trees and creating that habitat for not only white-tailed deer, but for bobwhite quail and eastern wild turkey, which those last two species very much need our attention in the southeast.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. How, how big is that farm? Um, we are at 1,900 acres. 1,900 acres. That's a good It's ch- a good chunk of land. Um, but when you're running a, a pine operation on the property as well, you need big chunks of land like, like that, right? I mean, it takes, a, it takes a lot of land to really to be able to, to do, um, do what you want to do as far as managing and, and farming for timber. I, I think there's a misconception a little bit that when it comes to, especially properties where you're trying to maximize pine yield um, on, a, on a piece of land, uh, that there's not really a lot that you can do when it comes to habitat management. So I'm curious some of the things that you guys have done to kind of blend the two priorities, right? Making some money off the land, you know, being able to sell the pines, bring bring pine to market, but then also doing what's best for wildlife.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that people talk about. Well, it's something that I talk about, but it doesn't really, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, especially like like habitat work, just like what I mentioned a minute ago, my myself, my family, we didn't know this stuff, you know, coming out of the hunting club because we weren't doing land work. So it it took a while, but basically a top-level o- overview is that over time we have very much diversified the landscape of the farm, fragment the land to where our age-class pine trees, they're all, we, we have multiple different age-class pine trees. And the reason why you want to do that is, is so that your your trees aren't the same age, so that when, when they get 30-plus years old, you're not sitting there saying, well, I need to cut all these because the market's hot. We can get a lot, you know, the the price is great, so we're going to clear-cut the entire farm. You don't want to do that. Uh, you know, clear-cuts are great, but, but just massive cuts, especially your entire property is not good. So when you clear-cut um, smaller sections, like, five to maybe 20 acres or like 50 acres, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to make money off the sale and then you're going to replant pine trees, which typically if you were to clear cut a section of Southeast in anywhere from, you know, January through like the early fall, you would then spray some herbicides, you know, kind of kill off any volunteer growth. You don't want any volunteer pine trees coming up, and then you're going to replant pine trees the following dormant season, not following January or February, and then at that point, you should have a nasty bedding thicket within two to three years. It just depends on, really, your soil, how much you know rain you're getting in soil, and then within two to three years, you're going to have a nasty bedding thicket that's going to have shade from the pine trees, good summer shade for deer and it's going to be a, a bedding thicket for the next maybe 8, 10 years, again, depending on the soil. So right then and there you are producing income by like cutting trees, and then you're creating just a phenomenal bedding thicket for deer, and all is also beneficial for quail. Turkey's a little bit up front, but not so much in the later days. Um, and then we've converted um, a lot of old loading decks. So when you cut pine trees or any kind of timber, the timber crew will, if there's not one already there, they will clear out a little section that might be not even not even quite an acre. And that will be the loading deck to where they'll cut the trees and they'll drag the trees and skitter trails to that loading deck. And then there'll be a crane to lift the trees, cut off all the rest of the limbs, and then place them on the semi trucks. So you have that but That's the cutting, and we've cleaned those up um and converted those in, into food plots. So a lot of our food plots were were loading decks that we use when we cut trees and some we've just created over time to help. And then as far as your last question, as far as balance the pressure, that's been over time. Just learning what works and learning what doesn't work. You've got to rotate stands, but then also you've got to create the stand that's best suited for the deer movement. Early years, we were caught up in, in you know, we want to stand right here because we think this is where deer should come from. Well, you got to understand where they're betting where they're coming from. You can't force a deer to do something they don't want to do. So you've got to create a habitat that is best for white tail deer, which, to put it very simply, it's deer hide and they eat. And then during the breeding season, there's a lot of so, more social activities they do, you know, making sign and breeding and everything. But for the most part, they hide and they eat. And when they eat, they've got to consume six to eight percent of the body weight, statistically, to maintain a healthy, um, you know, a healthy body size. And then lastly, you, your question about what we're doing. Because there is that stigma about about a pine forest, and then and, and that is the case. And we're seeing a very much in the hunting media, we are seeing a new kind of push of more a more of a holistic uh, land management approach. Uh, stuff that's very, you know, decades ago, the the forestry practices that we were seeing a lot in the southeast was basically, you just kill all competition. You want your pine trees and your dirt. You kill it off everything else. Well, you know, we've been on a, on a prescribed fire burn rotation about three to four, three to four years. You thin trees, you open the canopy, you do prescribed fire, and then you do early successional disking to promote that native seed bank. And you will end up with acres and acres of natural forage that will out compete, you know, as far as their nutritional value will out compete the best soybean field that you can plant.
1: Yeah, man, that that's incredible. I, I, you know, growing up hunting, you know, fifteen years ago plus, twenty years ago, uh, in primarily piney woods kind of settings, you know, I, I'm used to that. Hey, the, there's this, you know, pines and dirt and pine needles. You know what I mean? Th- it's like a carpet. I mean, you walk through there and it's silent, but there's nothing growing and nothing benefiting wildlife from you know eight feet down, uh, just just cleaned out. So, what are you guys doing to benefit, like? Turkeys and and quail and that kind of stuff, and encourage them to use your property
0: I, pretty much just exactly what I mentioned lastly was was prescribed fire and then opening the tree canopy, you know thinning the pine trees, getting sunlight because if you don't have sunlight, and this is something like you know I mean early days when I was planting food plots well, with a tractor the first couple of years I had the farm. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was planting food plots on fire breaks and different little sections that weren't getting sunlight. You've got to have sunlight, disturb the native seed bank through prescribed fire and early successional disking, which is simply taking a harrow, whether it's on on back of your four-wheeler or tractor, and just lightly breaking that dirt and to promote those native plants. And that is killer for bobwhite quail and turkey. Lastly, for the turkey and the quail, you, you've got to have those kind of thick areas and just, um, you got to, you know, someone put a best, and it, it, it might have been Dr. Craig Harper, who does a lot of work with, with, with the NDA at the University of Tennessee, talks about putting the bush hog up. You know, you want to bush hog your roads. We try to bush hog our roads in different areas maybe twice a year like once the first time in the summer and then we're bush hogging right now the last time before hunting season because all, all those all those ground nesting birds quail and, and turkey they need that cover you know they don't when you maintain a property that looks like a golf course just you know low bush hog that's not good for these birds they need the the cover around the roads and they need those dirty, you know, looking pitch roads. They need that cover.
1: Before we jump into the buck that you killed, was it on opening day of South Carolina season?
0: It wasn't, it was the following week. So we opened the 15th and, and we didn't start hunting until the following week, the 22nd.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So before we get to the story of that buck, which I mean, absolutely beautiful deer, one of the things that I'm curious about when it comes to uh, managing a property and, you know, like you said, you're going to plant those pines and within two to three years you're going to have just a big, nasty bedding thicket. And then it's going to last that way for six, seven, eight, nine years or, or however long until, you know, things start to change. Um, I'm curious about the differences that you've seen in the way deer bed in you know, where you're at, pretty flat pine woods. Compared to what we might see, or you know, written or see on uh, YouTube and that kind of stuff, when it comes to like the Midwest or hill country and that kind of thing, like how do you how do you see the deer bedding? I see
0: deer bedding just any which way. I mean, they will deer bed all of the place, and that's kind of across the board with goes you know doe groups and bucks. Um, Now. I will add that like right now, bucks are still in their summer mode, although most of our velvets already peeled, and they're, there are still some bachelor groups, but they'll start to break up and start to bed separately. But uh, they'll bed just anywhere and everywhere. So when people talk about looking for south-facing slopes or north-facing slopes, whatever it is, out the Midwest, I can't relate to that because they bed they bed where they feel the most safe. It's, and that's what I mentioned earlier about safety. They eat there where they feel the most safe and then also very close to food. So, you know, like if you look at an aerial map of like Iowa or, or even like northern Missouri, it's going to look like that traditional farm-type country, but if you look at an aerial map of our farm or the southeast, you're going to see a lot of ag fields too and food plots, but it's just massive green blocks of pine trees. Some might be thick, some might be thin. Um, a lot of deer hold up in swamps. If it's swamps down here that have standing water, um, deer bed in there and they're nasty. They're very dangerous, but it's like a security system because there's not much going in there. You know, I, I people talk about coyotes, but coyotes, they are smart. They are very smart creatures and they're going to go about the same place as you and I want to as a hunter. So like those those nasty pine thickets that are low with briars and young pine trees, a coyote doesn't want to go in there. They're not going to close their eyes and just rip through there. Um, they're going to, you know, they're going to hunt the easier stuff that, that aren't in. So yeah, deer bed any which way. And it gets even more tricky during the rut when these bucks are up, just day, day in, day out, all, all day, just running hard, chase these does. They I mean, you know, it might be be this way in the Midwest, I don't really know, but they're not going back to their traditional bedding sites that they bed outside the rut. They're going to lay down the side of a road, you know, like a dirt road, and, and you're going to jump them just anywhere, you know, just any kind of which way. So that's why it's even more important to really work the habitat and create the bedding and understand where they bed so that you can better lay out how you're going to hunt them.
1: Yeah, man, that that can be really, really tough trying to locate bedding. Do you see, do you see consistency? And you know, hey, they really seem to like this area, or is it just like, man, who knows?
0: Yeah, and that's why, I, and that will play right into the story of my butt from last week. There are there, there there are definitely some similarities.
1: Yep. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market. For hunters and anglers their gear is made by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen archery openers are just around the corner and tacticam just released several new products to help you share your hunt and take your scouting to the next level topping the list is their 6.0 point of view camera providing 4k footage in a user-friendly waterproof package they've also just released the new solo extreme giving you hd footage 3 to 8x zoom and one touch operation that you've come to expect from your tacticam point of view camera Tacticam's lineup of cameras is supported by the best mounts and adapters on the market. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount as well as their bendy clamp mount to make sure my cameras don't miss any of the action. And last but not least, they just launched the Reveal X Pro. With no visible flash, built-in LCD screen, and built-in GPS tracking, the Reveal X Pro will help you take your scouting to the next level. You can learn more about these and Tacticam's entire line of products at Tacticam.com or RevealCellcam.com. This episode is also brought to you by DeerLab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. DeerLab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. DeerLab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target, and you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can get a free 30-day trial, and then when you're ready to buy, use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, for 20% off of any plan. Now let's get back to the show. Let's go ahead and jump in there then. I mean, one of the things you said about it was uh, that buck was on his way back to bedding in the morning, so just got my wheels spinning about like, okay, man, this was a, a I'm guessing a buck you were aware of, a buck that you'd been watching, uh, in an area that, you know, probably had your hands all over it as far as managing the, the area and the stand set up and all that kind of stuff. So tell me a little bit first, why don't you tell us about the buck? Cause it's a beautiful deer.
0: Yeah. So he, um, phenomenal buck. I mean, that is, that's, that is a, just a a very good example of mature buck South Carolina. I mean, he's not going to be in a state record book. Uh, I think he's four years old, but I mean, that. That, to me, is a good pinnacle of what we're doing. Um, And so, I mean, that's that's what gets me fired up. And um, very good nine points. I have some very good mass. Uh, His base is like six and a half inches. And even between the brow time and the G2 was over six inches. Um, And so, comfort mass, which is very unusual for us. We'll get a lot of, even three and four-plus-year bucks that have good, good mass at the base. But generally, when you get between the brow times and the G2, that mass goes away. Um, I'm pretty confident. I'm about 90% sure he was the last year I saw my last hunt of December 21 last year. It was a gray light. He did about the same type thing, just kind of showed up my trail look in my direction but I could I I couldn't make out exactly what he was I thought he was a shooter then but I just couldn't make it out it just didn't work out um but he did about the same thing so I had some mature bucks on camera this summer but I did not have this buck on camera and I did not have any cameras in this area where I was hunting um I you know we've been managing and hunting this farm I think for 17 years now so I I have a pretty good handle as far as how deer move, where bucks are gonna be. Um and so I had some bucks on camera that I, I had I had some friends come in to hunt, I was trying to get them on those particular bucks. And then I, I, I was going off historical data hundred percent for that for that buck I killed. Not for that Man. particular buck, but just historical data about how bucks move and what they're what they're doing this time of year on our property.
1: Yeah. So tell me about the location where you killed the deer then. I, I'm guessing it was some kind of travel route back from a larger feeding destination back into the bedding. Is that right? That's correct. Um,
0: it was, um, so I've killed, this is the fourth mature buck I've killed, you know, from the open of South Carolina past it's a, the past four years, I've killed four mature bucks and, I, and I've done them all the same way in the mornings, the same type of hunts. Um, the one, the ones I killed in 2019, I was within a, a couple of hundred yards of that same place. Basically there was a, uh, a, a clear cut pine thicket that we clear cut many years ago, replant pine trees. It's a very thick, nasty thicket. It has not been thin yet. It's loaded with briars, but you, but I go in those thickets one time, one time a year and that's, and that's to look for sheds early March. That's the only time I go in those places and it's just loaded with deer trails. Um, and so you have those bedding thickets, Um, and then it's right on top of, um, some older pine trees that are getting close to 30 years old. They've been thinned twice and we burn them every three or four years. So we burn all of all the pine straw. And so it's loaded with vegetation height. that's anywhere from like two to four feet. So, when you're up a pine tree climbing, like I was, 20, 25 feet up is deceiving, but deer can be very hard to see. There's very good cover. I mean, a lot of deer bed in those kind of open pine trees because there's good vegetation to bed in and and good food. So, these particular, the basser group that I got on uh, that morning, they were probably coming back from either we have a hub system of food plots kind of somewhat centered on our property. It's uh, about four or five fields. They're all on top of each other. They're split up by some, by some hedges. And we have soybeans in there. We've got sun hemp. And then we've got a mixture of um, sun hemp, soybeans, peas, and buckwheat. And there's multiple fields there. And then not too far away, there's a series of peanut fields. So these bucks were coming from that direction. I don't know where they were necessarily coming from, but what I found that, you know, deer do, especially bucks. Because bucks, even though they're, they're on the summer schedule, they're they playing, you know, they're doing their own thing. Go groups, the mama doe, she's got the spike that she hadn't booted out from last year. She's got two or three fawns in her group, if not more fawns. She's controlling the, Operation and they're a lot of times going out to feed earlier in the day than you know, Buckswell. And so, I know people talk about the heat in South Carolina and the heat in the South, you know, Florida's opener, Kentucky, Tennessee. But if you think about it this way, yes, it's hot, but the coldest, the coolest part of every single day is overnight, especially during the warmer months, spring through early fall. I mean, as you know. Our, and I know you know this, you know, living in Alabama, but our stress season is not the winter. Our stress season for deer is the summer. Like winter for us is like a break. It's 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 a welcome break. So I, I'm saying all that because these deer, especially bucks, they move at night and they might show up to a destination food source an hour before dark, or they might show up at 2 a.m. Just don't know, you know, when they're going to show up, but they're going to be out feeding. And this is what I mentioned before: is statistically they need to eat about six to eight percent of body weight every single day um, to stay healthy. Now, of course, they are moving around a little bit during the day, but they don't move around much during the day this time here because they're not socializing; they're just eating and hiding. So they're going to be out all night. And I see this through like trail cameras. They go to one field. They feed there on peanuts, then they go to the food plots then then they bed down and they'll bed down somewhere overnight, you know for just for, for an hour or two or a couple hours. they'll bed down in food plots, and then they'll get up and start to you know leave those big fields at you know well before gray light so like when I'm running trail cameras and, and I'm getting some big bucks, and the people that follow me on instagram they'll see I've got some big bucks, but it's all like two a m or 5 a.m. Or it's dark. It's not. It's not daylight hours. I don't worry about that. I don't care about that because I'm not. I, I'm not trying to kill a big giant buck, a four plus year buck on a big open field. It can happen, but it's a very low percentage in, in, in the big picture. But I want to know where they're feeding at night, and then I backdoor them and cut them off when they're going back to bed. Um, because th- these bucks, and this is what I've learned over time hunting Mobley is, they're out all night feeding and then a gray light they they, they, they're leaving those big fields, but then they enter those pine trees, like what I mentioned, end and burn, and they have that cover. They feel safe in those pine trees and then they're milling their way back browsing their way back
1: with that ink. Yeah. So you get a lot of a, like a lingering effect yeah. through, through those bigger yeah. pines like that.
0: Absolutely, and I, I had a little bit even longer lingering lingering effect that Thursday morning when I shot the buck because it was raining. There was just uh, some thunderstorms. I mean, it's 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 rain almost every single day in the South uh, this summer, and there was a a pretty pretty good thunderstorm that was going well before daybreak. And um, you know, I've seen this with bucks hunting early season is that. You know, I'm sure sometimes they go back to bedding earlier, you know, but there's times where they get delayed and they're out feeding all night and they'll just kind of hunker down somewhere. Maybe they'll bed down or they'll just hunker down somewhere and then they'll come on back and they might get delayed a little bit for the rain. But as far as the rain, I I would imagine these deer welcome the rain. I mean, they kind of cool them off, you know, get rained on, you know, and also be up on their feet, on their hooves when it's raining as opposed to bedding down
1: yeah i think if i had a if i had a, a fur coat on out in the woods and i was forced to stay outside all day in the summer in south carolina i think i think once it started raining i'd be like oh yeah i'll take that
0: absolutely for I,
1: sure i think i, I think i would dig it so tell me about the morning of the hunt though so you get up it's raining or thunderstorming you decide man today's the day i'm heading out how did the morning kind of play out for you
0: well, I, I had a, I had a couple other guys up there. I had um Josh Hilliard from First Light. He was down here hunting oh, with us. Yeah. Yep. And he had um, um, a camera guy, Hunter Rugg from Capture Creative, um, filming him and um, we were sitting at sitting of our, our our farmhouse uh at four thirty in the morning, you know, woke up at four thirty talking about where we're going to go and they were looking to probably get out of the rain because of that that camera equipment and being, you know, going under a roof, which makes sense because it was, I mean, there were some thunderstorms and that storm that day blanketed the South. I mean, it stretched from North Carolina all the way to Alabama, Florida, Tennessee. So, you know, I, we were trying to figure out what to do and I had wanted to go to a completely different area. I had, I had had hunted around this one area, you know, for since Tuesday through Wednesday, two days. And I wanted to see something different. This was Thursday morning. I wanted to see something different. And the rain just delayed decision-making. And and then they got to the point where, like, I I have to go or I'm going to miss this hunt. Because, you know, if this was the rut, if this was, you know, mid-October through mid-November, I would have said, you know what, maybe I'll stay at the house you know, regroup, drink some coffee, eat some breakfast, and then I'll go out on the first rain gap and then just sit longer. You know, go out later and sit longer. But you can't do that this time of year because these bucks, when you're hunting bucks early, and I say that because we can't shoot those yet, they are moving right back. They, They like to be back in their bedding within an hour, within 30 minutes to maybe an hour and a half of first light. And that's it. So you can't delay you getting out there to hunt because they're already gone back. It's, I like to explain it. It's kind of like hunting wood ducks. If you're ever hunting wood ducks in the Southeast, they fly at first light and that's it. And that's it. Like they're not, a lot of our wood ducks are local birds. They fly at first light and that's it. There's no big ducks coming in later on in the morning. So it got a the point where I had to make a decision. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to climb. I want to climb, and I'm going to go back to, to to a tried and true, proven area that basically I can walk into in dark with my climber. Pick a pick a tree I've, I've never climbed before, based on wind, and I've got a pretty good chance of seeing a buck, and that's and that's what happened. I mean, it was it was a combination of habitat work, creating the bedding, creating the destination food source for them to feed at, feed out throughout the other night, and then having that area of those thin pine trees, which I was climbing over, flushed against that bedding site. And um, the, that week, the wind, like you said, was extremely swirly. I mean, it was shifting around the compass every hour. I mean, which was traditionally, that's what it does in the south. When you have hot temperatures and hot weather, you have wind that just shifts. makes it very difficult. But um, I picked the pine tree that was there was a little cluster of oak trees that will last the last time that area was clear cut. And so I love, I, 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 I do like those because I, my pine tree, um, I should say that my climber faces the tree. I was rifle hunting. Um, my climber faces the tree. And so my back was up against an oak tree. So I had a lot of cover. I mean, I had branches all around me had excellent cover, but, that general area I was in had some oak trees, had some nice oaks, which is great. But they were blind spots for me. So, um, you know, first light comes around. I had two different doe groups move through. They were coming from those destination food sources, going back to bedding. Kind of, they were they were just running through. It. I, I don't know if they were spooked uh, with something else or, or the rain. Don't know. But it, it was about seven fifteen. And this is well after first light, traditional first light, but, but it was overcast. It was raining. And so I couldn't see too well. I mean, you just couldn't see as if the sun was up. And um, at about 35 yards, there was this buck, and they were just standing there beside one of the oaks that was a blind spot for me, just standing right there. I never saw him coming, and I was looking around, but I had that blind spot. And so I, he was facing my direction, but it was one of those times where he'd be a deer on top of you that, that you didn't see coming and he's facing my direction, but I don't think he's looking at me, but I don't know. And I'm not going to raise my binoculars, you know, up. I'm not going to raise my gun up yet until he moves because I don't want him to spot me. And I've learned from mistakes that happened to me in the 2016 season. If you have a buck in range, whether it's with a bow or rifle, raise your rifle. If it's a bow, bow hunting, you know, maybe you, you want to class them first. But if you have a rifle, raise your scope. Because I learned 2016, I raised my binoculars, put it on the buck. It was a buck I was after. I was chasing. He was in range, but then he was gone. And if I if I'd raised my rifle first and scoped him first, I could have got shot off. So I waited for him to put his, put his head down he went behind uh, some of his oak limbs, and then I raised – he basically put, a, put a, a blind spot between him and me. I raised my rifle, and then I'm figuring out – I already knew that it was very difficult for me to see in my binoculars because it's raining. It's a steady rain. I don't have a roof over my head. I'm drenched at that point. I'm wearing rain gear, but I'm drenched. My bino harness is soaked. Um, I'm steaming in that rain jacket because it, uh, it doesn't breathe and my all my lenses, my scope my, and my binoculars were fogged up, covered in water, so I'm trying to wipe it off with my thumb. Then I had to scale my scope back because it was so close. I mean, within 30 yards of a high-powered rifle, it was extremely close. So I, so I had to dial it all the way down, and then I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I know he's a shooter. I'm not going to study his ambulance, I'm not going to count off points. I know he's a shooter, but I, but but I knew the wind was – cutting across me diagonal so if I didn't shoot he would win me pretty quickly and I just I I, I always feel like mature bucks when they get close enough to your tree like if they're coming under your tree they just sense something they they know something's up maybe they smelt your, your ground scent so I knew I had to make a shot if I was going to sooner than later and this is why I practice rifle rifle shooting. This is why I preach this all the time. The stuff I put out is that when you when you have a high-powered rifle with a good scope, practice. Of course, you always want to zero your gun and check your zero before you hunt, before the season starts, but you've got to practice shooting. And you've got to practice shooting how you hunt. You can't just put your rifle in a vice grip that doesn't move. And practice that way. You've got to practice off a of sandbag or or, or off a of shooting rail, because there's been times like this where I've done this shot before many times, where it's a close range shot with a rifle, quartering two. He was quartering to me because it was so close. And if I and if I would have waited for for more of a broadside shot, he probably would have winded me. But I I put the bullet right between his right shoulder and at his his chest, just buried it in there blew up his vitals, um, and he absorbed the entire bullet. It, it didn't exit. And so he took all that force of that 7 mag bullet, 150 grains, jumped up, did that classic J-hook, and then just crashed within 50 yards, just running off adrenaline. And, you know, uh, those kind of shots, people can do, but you've got to practice. If you don't practice your rifles, and I see that a lot of people, they just think that they have a high-power rifle, it, 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 it's a gimme shot. But you, but you gotta practice, um, and so that was the hunt. And, and it was, and when I talked to people, well, I will add that there were there were two bucks behind them that I did eyeball briefly. I think there may be a spike or a six point or four point, and I was not going to wait for anything that bigger. I mean, that bought in front of me got me going. That's that's what we're trying to grow and harvest. That's what I took. But you know, one last thing about that hunt is that sometimes. When you see the buck come out a ways away or you see the bachelor group starting to kind of appear and it's the young bucks and, you, and, and your heart's racing and you're waiting for that big buck and you're waiting for him to come out. And by the time he comes out, your heart's just beating a mile; It's just beating, it's nonstop. You've got the adrenaline to work through. You, you, you're trying to calm yourself down. But in this, in this situation, when a deer, it doesn't matter if it was a doe, when they come out on top of you and you don't have that lead time, to get excited, it it just – you tend or at least I I tend to work just off instinct. I know what my gun does. I know the shot I can take. I find him in my scope, and I shoot. And I never even had time to get my adrenaline going until after he was down. And then it's just like, wow, what just happened? You know, I can't believe that just happened. Man.
1: And was that your first morning out?
0: No. um, I hunted – all day Tuesday morning afternoon and then all day Wednesday morning and afternoon. And this was my, okay. yeah. Okay.
1: Thursday. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man. One of the, you know, I mean, obviously I saw the deer, just a, a beautiful, beautiful buck. Um, but one of the things that made me want to hear this story and share it with others is how, um, man, the, the, it, it's kind of like the culmination, like you said, of all the habitat practices that you guys are using. I mean, you had the bedding that you had created. You had the food that you had created. You had the the area of uh, you know larger, older pines with a with a solid understory where the deer felt secure. Which basically you guys had been managing and watching over. I mean, just really, it, it the buck is a testimony not only to to hunting prowess and that kind of thing, but just the 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 payoff of solid deer management work and taking care of your property. And um, yeah, man. So congratulations, beautiful deer.
0: I appreciate that. In and, and, and you know, if anyone's listening and they and they don't have the ability to manipulate the land, if they're in a hunting club or they lease land or they have access, just you know, access it didn't mean I, I don't you don't have to be able to do the habitat work to understand it. Sometimes the habitat work's already being done. It's already in place. It's just learning learning that natural deer movement. And that's something I preach all the time is for people to get off the food plots you know, get off the destination food sources, hunt mobily, and learn how the deer naturally move, and I promise you'll see more deer. You'll see a lot more deer. So, like, for me, like, I was hunting, like, I like to say, like, I was hunting those food plots or those act fields just several hundred yards away or a a couple thousand yards away, a distance away, But, but I was hunting them because I was hunting deer that were feeding in those all night, and they were coming back to that and just, and, and just knowing what they do. And of course, I don't know for a fact what that particular buck was doing, but I have a pretty good understanding what he was probably doing. And that's what led me to, to, to get in that trade that I was in.
1: Yep. Yep. Man, I, that's one of the things I wish when I was younger, I would have had a better understanding because w- the, the property where we hunted, we it's about 3,600 acres of, of pine plantation with, you know, a lot of the standard SMZs and stuff running through it. Um, but a lot of the timber was, was managed pretty well. They didn't do a lot of burning or anything like that, but we had a lot of those bigger pine stands with a lot of undergrowth and that kind of thing. And I, I just stayed away from those. I was like, ah, there's, there's a, that's a desert. You're not going to see anything in there. And uh, man, I was, I was, uh, I was very, very wrong. So, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, any hunt, really, I try to say, okay, what can I learn from that hunt? Like, what are the pieces that I can take away, especially the ones that aren't successful, but, Let's let's take this hunt, hunt in particular. What did Mark Haslam learn from this morning in the woods?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um, learn a little bit more about how deer move in the rain like that, that kind of heavy rainfall um, that came in before daylight. Um, yeah, I would say how they move in rain and then just kind of further confidence as far as what I'm doing. Because, you know, the first time or two I did this, it's like, you know, so much of hunting is luck because they're wild animals and you don't know what they're going to do. You have no idea. People have no idea. And just because you have, you have, you have trail camera footage does not trail cameras only tell you like a fraction, like a tiny fraction of what's really going on in your herd. Now bucks individual deer is one thing, but your overall herd trail cameras aren't really telling you what your herd's doing unless you just have tons of them out. Like, 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 like surveillance cameras. So for to me, it's only kind of cemented like what I'm, my style of hunting in the mornings that I do. That you know what, it's a pretty, I think at this point, it's a pretty proven method for me. And I'm not, I'm not one to like. And it's for me personally. I know we just kind of recently met over the phone now talking, but it's that. I'm a little reserved when I talk about this kind of stuff, like what we do at our farm and hunting, because I don't want to come across like like I'm bragging or that I'm a know-it-all or that my property is better than anybody else because it's not, you know, it's just, we're just doing what we, what we can do for the wildlife and conservation side. And I guess what I'm getting at is I think it's kind of cemented to like, you know, what I'm doing, it actually works and it's proven, you know, hunting mornings. Hunting mornings, and you know, if you want to try to kill a big buck early season on a food pot or ag field or whatever, in the evening it can be done. But I find it's much more harder to do it and challenging because so many different other factors. Um, and it actually it kind of dawned on me like, you know what? I've done this now the past four years with four bucks, um, and, and not that I deserve anything award or any kind of recognition, but I think it it kind of it kind of proves that it, that it can be done especially in an area that doesn't really get looked at for um, very outstanding deer hunting for, like, natural movement. Uh, and, and I say that because a lot of people have a stigma about the South that we, that, that we all hunt over corn piles, that you have to hunt over corn piles or food blocks. And you can't hunt them. A lot of people think that you can't hunt them like you can in the Midwest or other places, but you can it can be yeah,
1: done. It, it, that's right. It, t- it just takes a lot more. You just have to rethink, really, a lot of the principles that guys are using in the Midwest. You know, whereas a, a pinch point in Illinois uh, in October is going to look very, very different than a pinch point in some uh, big pine timber uh, down in South Carolina. But uh, the principle is still there. There are still things that, that sort of dictate and direct uh, direct that deer movement. Well, man, what? Where do you go from here? I mean, you've got a nice buck on the ground. What? Are, what are your plans for the rest of the fall?
0: So right now, I, I, I'm just loving life. I mean, it, it is. Um, I mean, of course, every hunter likes to kill a big buck. Don't get me wrong, but it. it when I can put something together early season, it just it gets that monkey off my back, and it it allows me to focus more on the other side of hunting. That's more than just big giant bucks just killing bucks antlers it's the it's the doe management um and so our next phase as far as how we hunt we have some guys come up to hunt that you know that week velvet from uh august 22nd to that sunday and then we we are laying off hunting we can start shooting those from our 15th and we're not going to hunt them until i've got a little doe tournament has a little fun little tournament with some friends and family coming up, um, the last week in September and we've done it the past two years and it's just a fun way of going out and just trying to thin out as many does as we can before the rut. And with our deer, de- with our deer density, um, there was a recent study that finished up in 2021 by Clemson university in our immediate area that had a showed an average and this is from spotlight surveys from unit from from Clemson University that had an average of hundred and sixty nine deer per square mile. It fluctuated um, it fluctuated yeah, fluctuated from from, one oh eight to two twenty nine deer per square mile. And I think that's I'm pretty sure that's hundred and sixty nine deer per square mile. So I say that because you know like, that's that's great and all for a lot of deer, but that's a that's a major problem that you've got to understand what's going on with your deer, how many does you need to shoot, buck to doe ratios, and then like what your neighbors are doing. Because there's some people that they just want to shoot bucks, and they can legally, that's fine. But if your neighbor's only shooting a couple bucks a year, then all their does you're playing catch up with. So we try to get after does very aggressively early season, then some out, and then we'll let it play out down the right, People hunt on the ride for bucks. We'll still shoot some does. And we also have, um, a couple more hunts lined up with some guests, uh, in September. We, um, do some work with, with a couple of different foundations, nonprofits that, uh, work with people that are sick and ill, terminally ill. And there's four adult hunters that are coming in and, and they're both in stage four cancer, uh, so especially coming in September. So, um, we're looking forward to that. And then we have a young boy. He's 11. He hunted with us that week, um, uh, two weeks ago at at a place. He just was, he hunted very hard, but he was unable to get on a buck. Um, he's 11 years old. He's already lost eyesight in one eye and he's supposed to lose complete eyesight within two months. And so he just, he, he's trying to experience everything he can in his life and he wants to shoot his first year. So he's going to come back, uh, in, in about a week. And we're hoping that we can get him on a deer. Uh, Now the does have, the does are also open. So that's, that's, that's kind of our season. We'll hunt bucks and then we just, just get aggressive um, with our doe, with our doe
1: harvest. Man, that is incredible. And, and, you know, good for you guys doing, doing what you're doing, everything you do to give back. I mean, what a, what a fantastic testimony, right? I mean, you have this this piece of property that is well managed is well taken care of. And you could sit back and say, ah, we got it just like we like it, but you guys sharing the property like that. Just, that's amazing. Very heartwarming. So man, appreciate you and everything that you do. Uh, Where can folks find, you know, tell me more, more about your podcast, where folks can find your writing, all that good stuff.
0: Yeah. So um people can find me on Instagram at that Mark Haslam. Um, that's H A S L A M. And also at Southeast Whitetail. I'm sorry, at Southeast.whitetail and also Southeastwhitetail.com. Um, a lot of the articles I'm writing are going just straight on Meteor and Wired to Hunt. I um, also started a podcast. It's the Southeast Whitetail podcast. Um, I had a little delay for about 45 days with my Wi-Fi, but we finally, it took us a while. I, I had to stop recording because my Wi-Fi kept freezing. Um, in a house, and we t- finally tracked it down to the cable wire, the Comcast ex- extending wire in my yard. So they had to replace. That was super frustrating. That's how people people can find me. Um, you know, um, I- I'm I'm very much into sharing our land, as I mentioned. My father was um, an adult onset hunter himself. He didn't grow up as a, as a child hunting. You know, his friends took him hunting when he was out of college. He got into it, and loved it. So, a lot of what we're doing up there and sharing our land derives from my father, the way he was brought into it. And then also, you know, we grew up in a hunting club, and also grew up being invited to people's places, just like us. And um, it's, you know, something we like doing. Um, and it's, you know, it's um, so, you know, if anyone's interested, reach out to me cause I, I'm always looking for people. To to collaborate with on some of these um new you know mentor type hunts
1: awesome awesome good deal well mark appreciate your time man thanks for coming on and uh good luck the rest of the season as you're taking uh, lots of different folks hopefully you guys can knock the doe population down just a little bit and uh do it in time for the rut
0: i appreciate it josh thanks for having me on and good luck to you this season
1: absolutely good luck buddy thanks And that is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Thanks to Mark for coming on the show. Looking forward to seeing what all he puts out as we move through the season this year over at SoutheastWhitetail.com, also on his podcast, Southeast Whitetail. Big shout out to our partners. If you uh, dig this podcast, please go show those partners some love. We couldn't do what we do here without their support. Tacticam, Huntworth and deer lab it's that time of year now when everybody's getting in the whitetail mood so if you're looking for some more outdoor themed and hunting themed content you can head over to the sportsman's there you'll find this podcast the how to hunt deer podcast you'll find my other podcast the wisconsin sportsman and then you'll find a whole host of other relevant outdoor content